Hey, this is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Craig Matsumoto, who works with 451 Research, a part of the S&P Global Market Intelligence Group, experts in their area. And we're talking today about content delivery networks, which is just a fancy way or a technical way of saying those tools are that infrastructure that allows us to enjoy, among other things, our streaming content. I asked Craig to join me about the history of this backend infrastructure and how does it work, the basic broad outlines, but in everyday language that you and I can understand. It's a fascinating conversation by a fascinating guest. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So join us on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Craig Matsumoto, welcome to the QTS experience. Thanks, Dave. There are very few times I wish I was in the Bay Area instead of beautiful Atlanta, Georgia. But sitting here now with rain and snow and mess, which we're not prepared for in the Southeast very well, I think probably a beautiful day out there in uh, the Bay Area would would be a better um, experience than what I'm sitting in. I won't tell you what the weather is right now. It would just kill you, and we would have the shortest podcast ever. Um, oh, it, it, I mean, it gets down to freezing, right? Literally, you know, 32 yeah. degrees Fahrenheit. That'll happen. It, right. It's at 3 a.m., but it happens. Right. Um, only in February, but it happens. Yeah, I'm reluctant to declare that uh, I spent a summer or two perfecting my driving skills when I was 16, 17, and 18, all through Menlo Park. San Carlos sit there. My grandfather oh, owned cool. a bunch of businesses in that area. So I have, a, my parents are graduates of Santa Clara High. So I have experience in the uh, Bay Area. I don't know that I paid that much attention when I was a kid in my teens, but certainly in middle age, I'm much more cognizant of warm, pleasant weather as opposed to dreary, messy. Most of the time here, it's fantastic. But in any way, I grew up here, so mm-hmm. I, I, there was a moment as we were growing up when we asked our dad, how come every time we go on a summer vacation, we go somewhere where it rains? And he had to break it to us. <laughs> Kids, that's, that's, that's the world. <laughs> that's the rest of the world. What an interesting place. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. Recently, I've been thinking, it's come up a number of times about um, the future of how or maybe the future is too big a word, but sort of a, the neck, the near future of how we're experiencing, um, not not necessarily the internet, but just our streaming video. I've I've seen um, examples of sort of live interactive streaming video games that are coming. There there are um, just so many things that are evolving and developing in the world of what we call content delivery networks or CDN. We've talked to some of the hardcore infrastructure people who talk about the network and how they've built it out, former Akamai people, things like that. What I was hoping that you could bring to the conversation today is a little bit about, first of all, what is CDN from your perspective? And um, why don't we start there and just sort of where, where, how you see it's evolving how are the play? Who are who is involved in it? And we'll just kind of start with that as the conversation. Okay. Yeah. So CDN is a content delivery network. It's it's an idea that's been out there in the world since 1999, 
when mm-hmm. Akamai started the first one. Right. And the idea, video is a great, great way to exemplify how to do this. So, so the idea is that if you have, the idea is that you take content and you spread it out to lots of different nodes around the world. You spread copies of it everywhere. So the, the absurd example I like to give is let's pretend every Disney movie in the world is on one server in Orlando, Florida. It's right. underground. It's buried next to, next to Walt's, you know, cryogenic frozen body, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and, and you want to start streaming Disney movies. You don't want every single person in the world because there are a lot of people who are going to want to watch this. You don't want all of them going to that server, flooding your network, flooding all of that server's ports. You, you can't sustain that. So what you do is you take copies of the things that you know people are going to ask for mm-hmm. and you sprinkle them all over the world in caches. That's C-A-C-H-E kind of cache, right. like, like geocaching. And so when someone watches the video, they're not going all the way to Orlando. They might have to... the at first to identify which movie they're watching. But then from that point on, the movie is streamed to you from the nearest cache. And what that does is it, it, it saves, it saves network bandwidth because you don't have as far to go. You're, you're not consuming in terms of fiber miles as much of the network while you right. watch this movie. And it, it should help performance because the distance is a lot shorter. There are fewer network hops. Every network hop on the internet is kind of like a subway transfer in New York, where it's going to add a delay, and that it, every hop is a chance for something to go really, really wrong and just mess up your whole journey. So you want as few hops as possible. You want to be as close to the user as possible, so that if they do something like rewind, um, that command will get to the video server more quickly, and maybe that'll make a difference. That that could make it for a smoother, uh, uh, more performant uh, uh, experience. Right. And then, and then, of course, for for Disney themselves, remember they have that one server in Orlando. They don't have to spend to put a massive beefy network around that server. They can they can again they've spread out the problem. So that's right. what a CDN does: is it it spreads out uh, the, the act of delivering content. I was we I didn't use the term CDN, but I was trying to explain the concept to uh, one of my children a few years ago, and I said, you know, we whenever you see a new neighborhood go in nearby a grocery store is soon to follow, you know, which, whichever one comes first, I'm not sure, but a grocery store and the, the ancillary services, maybe some restaurants, et cetera. You don't want to have a store. It could be the superstore here in Atlanta. We've got the farmers to call market market. It's the international market, massive three or 400,000 square foot place, but it's an hour and a half on a good day to get from where I live down to the market. And then if I'm down there competing with my great friends, one, just to fill my cart, you know, to navigate the store is congested. And I may get there and that thing that I wanted from the UK or, or that exotic food or whatever it is, um, it may be not on the shelf or there's a long line for or whatever. And then I've got to get it back. And every intersection, to your point about the subway example, I've got the intersection leaving my neighborhood and then get on the freeway. And you know, all of this, the greater the distance and the more intersections I have to get to that location, the more opportunity I introduce for delay and, um, you know, other challenges that arrive. And I think they got it. They then asked me to take them to the store because they wanted to get some, you know, whatever the dessert was, but that was kind of the idea. And I, I think that that's what you're describing here. It is, yeah, it's kind of is. We, we should write the children's guide to CDNs. It would be a hit. It's, it's what my kids wanted to know about when they were in kindergarten. It's all they asked. I'm sure. 
Um, how did you get into writing about something like that? I mean, why would, how would that occur to you? It got assigned to me. <laughs> <laughs> I joined 451 as a networking expert. I had, I had uh, written about the telecom network primarily mm-hmm. as a journalist. And in, in, in the process of doing that, I got into the whole idea of software-defined networking, mm-hmm. um, uh, which was, that, that's a whole other topic, but it's, it's about running the network through software rather than physically having people go out and plug fibers into ports. Uh, you right. could reconfigure the network on the fly. So joining 451, uh, they saw an opportunity to, for me to join the data center group mm-hmm. and apply what I know about networking and where I thought networking was going to go with software-defined networking, apply that to the concept of the data center world. Mm-hmm. So kind of what I'm covering at 451 is kind of, kind of that data center uh, strata of mm-hmm. networking, um, mm-hmm. stratum, uh, which includes content delivery networks. It includes the interconnection services that go from one data center to another. Um, it includes connectivity up to the cloud. I, I mm-hmm. get into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sort of where all this came from and, and where it, led was to this whole idea of, uh, of edge computing and, mm-hmm. and, and the new edge that's being developed because that's one of the directions that content delivery networks are starting to go in. It is doing more than just delivering content. They, they want, some of them want to also host computing or either host computing in a, in a cloud-like sense or host little bits of computing that you could use to customize the way the CDN is operating. Before we dive into that, back mm-hmm. in the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned Akamai. I thought you were, when I first started thinking of the idea of CDN, I would have thought somebody like a Netflix would have been one of those original, um, you know, they're, they want to stream content. They want to, they want to get it mm-hmm. to you. How, how did that develop um, as you understand it? Where was it organizations like Netflix or was it, you know, Akamai doesn't create content. They create right. the ability for providers to, at least they didn't in the beginning, they created the opportunity for people to distribute it. Um, so how did that, in your understanding, develop? Was it the creators primarily that were pushing that? Or did somebody come along and say, hey, as you go to distribute these Disney films, uh, Netflix or whoever, as you get the licensing to do this, let me show you a better, more excellent way. How did that develop? So it actually started... Uh, not in video, but in just plain old software downloads. Oh. Because back in the 90s, software was starting to get big enough that to download the next version of something like Microsoft Office. Did they call it Office back then? But Microsoft, whatever. Right. It was large enough and the bandwidth pipes were skinny enough that, that it, it was just taking too long. Right. And it wasn't economical. So that was Akamai's first job. And I don't know which side that originated on, like whether they came up with this idea and proposed it to the world or if the world started saying, Hey, I, I think it was the former. Mm-hmm. I, I think come to think of it because Akamai's people came out of MIT, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. It, it came from an academic idea. Right. And, and, and the CEO, Tom Layton it, it is, is, is a mathematician himself. Um, right. Well, so I that, at- that was, that was, that was how it started. It was for just big bulk software downloads that the network couldn't handle. It rings true. Um, I'm sure it's something similar to that. When I worked at uh, the University of Texas, all of our, in the beginning, all of our um, initial installations of a office or an OS or whatever it was came off of a 
floppy disk. Originally, a lot of our audience will have no idea what that is or a CD or whatever, but all of the patching, all the subsequent updates and patching came from distributed caching nodes that we would have throughout campus or across campuses or whatever. The big bulk came from hard media and then the iterative updates came from you know, these, these other points, because we didn't want to crush our network or crush any particular part of our backend infrastructure. So we distributed that across the campus, which had its own pros and cons, but it sounds like um, probably this is how the idea got started for uh, over the top streaming. Yeah, it is. Actually, they, they still use CDNs for software downloads, mostly for things like games. Wow. You know, and anything very large. You can talk but yeah, because the CDM, this, this distributed network was out there, it became a natural for, uh, for video usage. Right. Uh, you mentioned Netflix. Netflix is a fun example because they ended up doing their own CDN and it's completely different from all of the others. Um, I don't know the motivations for doing this, but if you go back to like, I want to say 2013-ish, there was, there was a, a, a bit of an argument about the amount of traffic network Netflix was consuming on the internet core mm. because you've got these huge entities like Comcast and what was then level three networks mm. that peer with each other, right? They connect with each other for free on the assumption that, and this is in the middle of the internet, right? right. So this is for big bulk amounts of aggregated traffic from all of us. Right. And the assumption is that that evens out in, in, in each direction. So they will connect to each other for free. Netflix destroyed that. <laughs> Proposition because it's all one. It was all one way. Right. Uh, I don't remember the details of that, but sometime after that, um, Netflix developed its own CDN where they put their own cache nodes all the way down into ISP networks. I, th I think Netflix actually pays to do this too. There's some kind of contractual agreement anyway. But uh, I, I don't know if it's because of that internet core argument, but it, it certainly it helped ease that problem because again an entire video was not going all the way across the internet to, right. to, to get to each individual viewer i'm sure a provider like that it, it, to some degree i mean in almost everything in life come back to economics and control to some degree yeah. i'm sure that there were you know a little bit of saber rattling of some of these uh, providers saying hey you know we need to change this is an inequitable arrangement we're gonna have to change right. things and they felt threatened i also you know, one of the things that I've admired about Netflix, especially in the beginning, was the um, speed and skill at which they developed algorithms to deliver more and more content to more and more different types of mobile devices and still have a great user experience when it got to your whatever that end device was. It seems kind of crazy now in uh, 2022, but but there was a period of time there where you really just wanted to download the video and then watch it. You really didn't want to try to quote unquote stream it even in the early days of broadband. And they really developed great algorithms and work on not just how do I balance nodes across the interwebs and, and make the distribution points, but when it is time to stream the content that you have a, a great experience. And we don't even think about that anymore, but back in the day, that was a pretty big deal. Yeah, oh, that, no, that's a good point. And, and you're right. They were early in developing that. I didn't experience it myself because I was still the DVD subscription guy. Yeah. Um, 
to me. Yeah, we, but, but yeah, you're right. They they they, they made it a smooth experience early because otherwise no one would have wanted to do it. We were the DVD subscription people as well. Um, but as a you know, as a tech person and an early adapter, I'm usually curious about these things. I wonder how that would work. Or in the beginning, you're trying to get the disc of something and there's only seven copies. It's usually not the, you know, the latest and greatest, but it's, I want to see Jeremiah Johnson or, or whatever. And they're saying, look, you can wait your three weeks, which was an eternity in our world to, uh, to get that disc in, or I've got it available to stream from this catalog. And in the beginning, it was pretty lumpy. But very quickly, it became, I don't know that it would be an experience for the whole family, but certainly for technologists um, that, that could look past some of the pixelation and the, the lumpiness of it, um, you know, we were willing to experiment with it. But then very quickly, it wasn't probably, I mean, just a year, two years later, that was like, why? We can get almost anything we want, not from a DVD, but from a, um, just streaming this thing. So anyway, that was my experience yeah. with the uh, early days of that. I have to admit, I kind of liked the randomness of the DVD queue <laughs> because you, you're right. You couldn't get the thing you really wanted to watch, but that thing that was sixth or seventh that you put on there three weeks ago or, or month, you know, three months ago and forgot about would suddenly appear at your doorstep. And you'd be like, oh yeah, oh, well, yeah I'll must, check that out. You had more control over your queue than I did. I have a a wife now of 35 years and three oh, children. Yeah. <laughs> and back in the day, they, I had little control over the queue. They ran the queue. So my, uh, Hey, let's see the 2008 Monza sports car year in review video never seemed to make it past little mermaid or whatever. So I can sing pretty much any Disney song Not that you would want me to, uh, because I've Listen to them a million oh, times. No, 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 I'm interested. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm not going to. This would be I good content. My job. Maybe off, <laughs> maybe as an, as an outtake. Um, so we've talked about Netflix and briefly talked about Akamai. What's who, how many players are there that are part of Bill? And by players, I mean significant, whether they're a content creator, um, like a Netflix who's also a distributor or they're an enabler like an Akamai or once upon a time Verizon, people like that. Who who are some of the names that you're familiar with that are really engaged and active in um, in the CDN world? You mentioned Akamai. Uh, another yeah. one of the older ones is Limelight Networks. Hmm. Um, they, 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 they've, they have kind of, uh, I don't want to say restructured, but they, they, they sort of fell off the curve for a couple of years there, um, and, and they're they're rebuilding now uh, from a developer standpoint. The two you hear a lot about these days are Cloudflare and Fastly. Okay, they're both relatively new. They uh, were founded. Oh boy, one of them circa 2014, and the other one maybe 2009. I'm okay. guessing, and I'm not going to say which is which. Right. But they so they do a CDM, but they came at it from a next generation perspective where they targeted software developers. Mm. So this wasn't about just delivering a video. Fastly, in fact, very specifically, was founded by a software developer who was frustrated with his inability to control the CDM that, his, that, that, that he was using. Mm. So the whole point of Fastly was to give uh, little bits of, of, of programming ability Mm-hmm. To the to the CDN customers, just just tiny bits, and then they've expanded it from there. Cloudflare actually, they, they don't really call themselves a CDN, uh, which is fair. Cloudflare 
started out with the same shape of a CDN, that distributed network, lots of nodes all over the place. Mm-hmm. And they used digital liver security at first. Mm-hmm. They distributed uh, uh, security functions like DDoS protection throughout this network so that in a sense, the entire network is, is, is protecting you. And, and their end game was to build a better internet. So they did security stuff first and they, they're now doing network as a service offering their whole network as, as sort of a, a tunnel through the internet. And, and along the way, they also started doing content delivery. So they, they do fall in the same camp. They, they count as the same. They, they, they perform the same kinds of functions as, as CDNs. Uh, but they, they think of themselves as something different. And that's something you're seeing around the whole industry. Um, this idea of a distributed network being used to deliver some kind of service, usually out of the security or networking itself, mm-hmm. uh, comes up in companies like Zscaler, uh, uh, Netlify, uh, um, some of the networks as a service stuff that Mike Fratto covers for us. I want to say Ariaka, Cato Networks, companies like that. This is not answering your actual question. So going back to the idea of who's doing the actual CDNs, uh, Cloudflare and Fastly, um, but right, most of the uh, telcos Big, big telcos like AT&T, Verizon started CDNs, and then most of them, one by one, divested them. Mm. Verizon was one of the last holdouts, and they actually have a substantial CDN. It was an acquisition called Edgecast. Uh, They've spun it out, and it's gone back to the Edgecast name. So that's one that's out there, too, that I don't want to leave out. Mm. Um, I'm curious when you started, um, so I did ask who are the players, but when you mentioned security, so I, I understand the distribution, mostly a one-way distribution of, um, you know, we, we have something that everybody's going to ask for. I mean, we do it in, we do it in manufacturing. We do it in a million different things, right? We, we want everybody to come down to the uh, bread warehouse. We're going to load the bread on all these trucks and distribute them. Same thing with milk, same thing with pretty much anything. We distribute it out to the edge of where people are consuming it. Um, as opposed to coming to this central warehouse. So that makes sense. When you talked about security just a second ago, first of all, um, c- could you take a second and explain to people what uh, DDoS attacks were? And then secondly, or, or is, why? what does that mean? And then why would somebody, um, h- how do, would a service work that would help organizations protect themselves from, you know, from a security perspective? DDoS stands for Distributed Denial of Service Attack. Mm-hmm. And there are dozens of ways that this can work. So I'm, I'm just going to describe the simplest one. Sure. So that's kind of where my level of understanding is. That's all right. The, the simplest one is that somebody uh, uh, finds your internet address and they just bombard you with requests. Mm. Like, like, so this isn't a network break-in. They don't have to actually do anything. They just, right. they just keep hammering this one server or this one network switch with requesting, hey, I'm here, hey, I'm here, hey, I'm here. And the, 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 your server or switch is programmed to respond to that, to say, okay, you're here, okay, you're here. You're so if you do this literally a million times per second, you know, that, that's all that your equipment is going to do is... is, is, is Right. Receive just receive and acknowledge that that this person is there. So that's what it that, that, that's the most basic kind of DDoS attack is just flooding. It would be it's the same thing as you know those robocalls you get um, right. on on the landline telephone or even on your cell phone. If you got if you just got those all day, right? And, and nothing else would be able to get through. 
assuming you're doing something like even just look at your phone to to because it lights up you know that's some of your attention that's gone it, it, it just eats away the cpu cycles right and it prevents anything else from happening so that that's what a ddos attack is so one way to mitigate that is to have some intermediary look at everything this is this is again the most primitive way to do it sure Simplest explanation, have one intermediary, like a node on the CDN, look at all the traffic that's heading toward your network. And it and based on past experience, it knows what a DDoS attack looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, it knows the, 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 the common methods and the, right. the typical forms that this takes. So when it recognizes a DDoS attack, it starts deflecting that traffic. And, and what... Um, what a CDN can do is because they have this entire network at their disposal, that they can deflect that traffic and not have it consume their entire network. Because if you tried to do that yourself, like say you had you had a network switch, you were afraid it was going to be DDoS, so you put this other server in front of it. Well, right. DDoS attack comes, the, the, the server now has to deflect all that traffic, and that server is now essentially DDoS. And whatever network connections come out of it, because you only have a couple of them, assumedly, right. Uh, also get flooded. So the distributed network gives them the resource to absorb the attack, basically. As you're describing, I'm imagining it would almost be like if you have uh, probes out surrounding the earth, and as we have things coming to bombard us, if you can identify them much further away from the source and deal with them much further away from this source, you have a much greater opportunity um, to respond and deflect, and as opposed to just having a thing that's scanning the entire sky and is reacting to everything, especially if you have a failure in that thing or there's something, you know, this, the size of the attack can, can overwhelm networks. Um, by the way, I love your explanation. I think it's great. A lot of times we get engineers on here or I go into engineer mode and I find myself in trying to describe something from a nanog or engineering perspective, and we lose 85, 90% of the audience, <laughs> they would just rather have a journalist describe it who's used to, how do I make this a really simple analogy that the most people can understand? So well, thanks. Yeah. Now we're going to get all the hate mail from the engineers because you know I didn't what? have a precise. There's only seven of them, so it doesn't <laughs> matter. So as you, as you're thinking about security, how, you know, is this, was this such a common practice? I mean, usually when I hear about security, I hear, or the, or the world hears about malware breaches so that fuel can't move through pipelines or uh, meatpacking can't be accomplished or whatever. How common is something like the uh, denial of service in your reporting experience? Is that a, is that a real threat that's happening constantly? Or is it a, um, just one of the many things that we're having to deal with in the world? I guess it's both. It's happening constantly and we just have to deal with it. It happens so often that we don't bother reporting on it anymore. Yeah. So the reason you see don't see DDoS attacks in the news is because they're just, most of them aren't newsworthy. They're so common. And second, because we've gotten really good at deflecting most of right. them. Well, they don't ter- yeah. tend to be terribly sophisticated, but they can be overwhelming. I know a yeah. year or two ago, you know, some of the Amazon uh, AWS nodes were taken down um, from massive mm-hmm. attacks. And uh, it's a reminder for us out there. I mean, if you put enough resources together and direct them to a single point uh, and we're all connected to the backend infrastructure of that, it can really uh, it can really change your world. I think I think it's just interesting that the service that was popularized or most popularized outside of the tech world for delivering sort of one way 
um, entertainment experience is now being used, you know, the concept is being used, whether it's security or other ways to see it distributed. Yeah, it, it, it's a relatively new thing. I mean, I mentioned Cloudflare. Mm-hmm. They've been doing this for a while. But Akamai, for example, if I have the years right, the way Akamai tells the story is in 2007, they had literally zero dollars in revenue from security. They just didn't do it. Right? Right. They had D- had DDoS protection in the network, but they were using it internally. They weren't right. offering it as a service outside. And now security is, what was the last number I saw? Something like 40% of the company. Yeah. Revenue-wise, uh, and it will eventually be more than half the company. So, yeah, this—that's what's happening with CDNs. They still deliver content, but they're finding other uses for that distributed footprint. That that architecture has has that there are other ways you can make that architecture useful to to businesses, and they're making a lot of money at that. We, we've talked about "quote unquote" the edge, and I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because if there's one way to get a bunch of data center and tech technology and telecom nerds arguing it's to define the edge and where is the edge and we'll go round and round about that <laughs> but what i but what i am curious from your perspective is as we think of the nodes quote unquote that are being used to deliver these services how there there's there's more and more discussion about the edge is going to be literally the actual smart device. It's going to, it's going to live on the device. Mm-hmm. There's going to there's gonna be storage on there. There's going to be compute on there. It's going to be this interactive experience. And others are saying, no, maybe to a certain degree, depending on how you define it, but really it's still going to be these nodes. The modes may look differently. They may be cloud-based. They may be, you know, whatever. How do you see sort of this intersection of edge and CDN playing out? Is it going to be more of the same? How, how do you see it developing? That's so hard to answer because uh, it could do, it could go so many different. You can directions. change your mind six months when we talk about it again. But right now, Excellent. what are I what will. are some of the things that are curious to you that you think are? I think it's probably going to look like this based upon my conversations. Okay, what what what's interesting about the CDN edge is that uh, well, one reason we, we people talk about the CDN edge mm-hmm. is because the CDN is already there. Right. right. So physically, you already have this distributed network. You have nodes all over the world, and, and they're not inside the cloud. So by some definitions, by my definition, that's the edge. And Akamai will tell you that they've been saying that all along since 1999. Right. So it, 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 some of the argument for the edge is, is really is kind of that basic, that as long as it's there, we can put some computing on it. And, and now we have edge computing. Boom. Right. The, the same argument is happening with the telcos, right? Because the telecom network, again, is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, telcos, mostly in the rest of the world, but, all, but also Lumen here in the United States, have data centers that are on that network. And then at and and Verizon have central offices and cell towers. Hey, we could put compute there. And boom, we have edge computing. Right. So uh, in terms of what format it's going to take or where I see it going, it, it, it it's hard to say because there are going to be so many options. Mm-hmm. I know for so for CDNs, they have a built-in use case, and that's the one I mentioned before, the CDN itself. So Fastly, for example, and, and Akamai and Cloudflare, all of them have, but I'm going to start with Fastly because they're the one that I said was programmable from the start. Okay. Uh, they've added serverless computing. They've added more ways of more thoroughly programming their CDN. Mm-hmm. And, and running your own little applications on it. 
that counts as edge computing, right? Mm -hmm. It's internalized. It's only it, it, it's intended for just within Fastly, but it is a form of edge computing, and that's so that's where a lot of the early CDN use cases are. Some of the CDN structures, like Cloudflare, like StackPath, um, are also starting to offer what's essentially an edge cloud, like like just flat out infrastructure as a service running on the CDN. Stack, StackPath actually um, is doing that overtly. Uh, uh, you, you can use them just as a cloud, essentially. It just doesn't have the same shape as a cloud. It's not in one data center. It's spread out all over the place. Uh, uh, Edgecast slash Verizon is heading that direction too. Hmm. So you've got this edge that's out there. You've got these edges that, that exist. Uh, the, the nagging question is, who's going to want to use them? Mm -hmm. And that's where you, you can find use cases. There are, there are plenty of them, but none of them are, are none of them are the equivalent of the killer app where you have a use case where it's like, oh, this one retailer is doing this, they're all going to want to do that. Right. And that's where edge computing is going to go. I, 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 I haven't found a convincing argument for one of those yet. Mm -hmm. It's almost too much for me to resist. So I'm going to indulge in just a second. When, when okay. we talk about the edge, um, technologists talk about the edge and, and how they define it. Depending upon the definition, I mean, the edge, at least in terms of technology, when the very first um, telegraph machines began getting distributed and you had somebody, you know, receiving a Western Union transmission and that was the edge, right? And so it's, mm -hmm. it's, I think about it, whenever a service is requested electronically or over a network or telecom device and it's serviced. So in some of my data centers, which tend to be in big metro data centers, or big metro environments, and they're generally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of square feet in size. We are the edge for those people that reach the economic and latency range of the people. You know, if you're serving up a Disney movie in Atlanta, it's probably going to be serviced out of one of our data centers, more than likely. If you're getting that from Athens, maybe, or maybe you're receiving it from somebody in South Carolina or North Carolina or whatever. So the edge can, you know, can move and shift. It's not a lot of times when people describe the edge, they think it's some rural, uh, you know, I'm out here in, I don't want to name a rural city because I will get hate mail from that. But, you know, it's some rural environment. It just depends on, you know, I need a, I have a latency requirement. I've got a, a quality of service requirement. I have an economic requirement while I'm watching my stranger things on my phone at the soccer field. And who is it that can serve that? to me um, in the way that I want to experience it or provide the security denial of service uh, defense that I need to receive. And, um, you know, where is that infrastructure that's that balance of those, at least those three legs of the stool, where, wherever it may be. Mm -hmm. um, I, I am curious, though, a guest I had on the other day, we were talking, his name's uh, Doug Money. Doug is a, an author and a um, covers, among other things, telecom and space. We were talking about the infrastructure bill and it didn't even occur to him, to occur to me to ask him about the impact of CDNs. One of the things that he's seeing a lot of conversation around is the, the fiber infrastructure uh, projects that are being proposed or being engaged. Many states, if not most states, have some form of infrastructure already in, underway, even if they're very modest plans. 
but this federal money that everybody's jockeying for, it's going to be coming down the, um, coming down the pike to them. And they're like, oh, we need to get a hold of this. And he feels that we don't have a time frame yet, but ultimately that's going to be fiber to most of the U.S. And then he's really excited because now it's just a matter of changing optics or, uh, you know, optical performance right. on the ends of that every now and then. And so all of a sudden you have, uh, you have a lot of opportunity. Have you heard any, anybody in the CDN world talking about the impact of the, of this bill that's coming or has been passed through Congress and the money that's coming? Not so much. Uh, most of the CDNs don't reach far down enough in the network. Mm-hmm. And by down, I mean, up would be the internet abstractly right. down would be you and me, our houses. Right. Right. The most CDNs don't reach far enough down in the network that they'll get, uh, they'll get benefits from that mm. directly. They're mostly dealing in an upper echelon of the network that's already at that point where everything's mm. optical and it is just a matter of, of changing out optics. And once every three or four generations, you also have to change the equipment behind the optics, maybe. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's changing too because of pluggable optics. Whole, whole other topic, but let's not talk about that. Right. Um, where was I going with that? We were talking about, yeah. you know, how deep into the, um, yeah. how deep into that world do we think they're going to reach? Will will that sixty five billion bucks or whatever it is really matter for them or not? Because to telecoms, it's a big deal. You know, they absolutely want some of that. Pie. They want to. They don't just want some electrical co op extending connectivity out to the farms in Illinois or Iowa or whatever. Where where we have all these AI devices that are made by John Deere that are operating, but they're but they're so limited by uh, bandwidth constraints. They want that absolutely pushed. Uh, you know, downtown Atlanta's got lots of fiber. We want some five G built. We want some other stuff built. But out in our rural areas, we don't. And so you know that's where this is going to come into play. And I'm just wondering if the CDNs were embracing it. Hey, look, more fiber, more infrastructure, more connectivity that's pushed deeper into a lot of underserved, you know, 4G served and underserved markets gives us an opportunity to bring a different kind of user experience or, so they're excited, or are they trepidatious? Because if I can get fiber connectivity from Atlanta to 150 miles outside of Atlanta, I may I may be able to be served by you know somebody else's competitor further deep or up depending upon how you describe it, and now that impacts my business model. I didn't know if they were talking about it. if they. It sounds like they're kind of uh, you know, kind not, of indifferent to that. Indifferent, yeah, yeah, because it it, does, it doesn't necessarily affect them. Um, CDN doesn't live that deep in the network. Deep meaning doesn't. The, the nodes aren't that close to, to you and me. They, they aren't really in, in, in the ISP tributaries right. of the internet. They, they sort of exist at a, at a more centralized level right. of the internet where we're already at a point where everything is strung together with fiber, right. where they'll be able to make the leap from 100 gig to 400 gig by just changing out optics. Right. So they're, they're pretty... Indifferent to that, a couple things come to mind. First, I can't resist saying we could have done that fibering up already in this country yeah. because we were talking, you, you know, we were talking about this in the 90s. Well, and the arguments with that, it's going to cost too much and it's going to take too much time. Well, we, you, the time has passed. It right. happened, right? And right. we spent the money. And this is not my area of expertise, but my understanding right. is we have spent the equivalent of the money in the form of subsidies to the big carriers we could have done this it could have been done already 
there's so many things, and you know this, Craig, that we, um, I, I was just having a conversation. I, it's come up before my podcast in one form or the other, but I was talking to somebody that's kind of a military expert and they're very, um, mm-hmm. I had early, la, end of last year, Steve Andriel, who's at Villanova now, but he's a tenured professor at multiple universities, former um, DARPA think tank genius guru. And he's really concerned about our lack of concern at certain levels of our government and in industry around um, the development of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and and other future tech, not, not just to defend ourselves, but to enable and empower. And, um, you know, this is a world that we need to embrace. And one of the things that we talked about kind of related to that conversation, I don't remember if it was Steve or or somebody else, but it was, if you look at states around the world, they are, um, not a lot of people are investing in aircraft carriers and running them through sea trials. And, you know, that, that was 25, 30 years ago. That was the whole world. That's how you distributed, um, you know, influence and power or certainly protected your, uh, your interests. And then could you extend it? That's how we do it in the States and, you know, through other military mechanisms. Now it's, um, you know, how do you, um, how do you break into, you know, it's all cyber, it's all cyber. How do you, how do you enable opportunity for your citizens? How do you protect yourself from a cyber attack? How do you influence, you know, on and on and on without getting wildly political about it. And, and a lot of thinkers have been saying, look, we really need to embrace this. We really need to get ahead of it. We need everything from the ethics to the application to how does this work? And um, other countries, very quietly, Korea comes to mind. My daughter's a, um, her minor is in Korean. And you mm-hmm. see how interconnected South Korea is and how fiber pretty much everywhere and the opportunities for their citizens and the risk that they're learning how to mitigate and on and on and on. And other countries are, are like that. And the United States is a much more complicated, not just geopolitically, but geographically, you know, country. I get it. But our yeah. emphasis and focus should be on that. It will be at some point because we're going to feel the economic um, impacts, if not other impacts to that. So I think that's kind of the answer to why haven't we been doing some of the things we've been doing? Because there's vested interest to just keep doing the thing we're doing um, yeah. and really not think outside the box until it hurts too much to not think outside the box. No, absolutely. There are vested interests in not changing the way we do things. And we also don't reward long-term thinking. Yeah, like just the way that the the economy doesn't run reward long-term thinking. But right. the, but so there's there's another point about the edge. We can get back to the edge talking yeah. about uh, those deeper fiber builds. Um, so one one of the things people wrestle with when they talk about the definition of the edge is exactly where the edge will be. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in building out the edge, that's a pretty important question because the further out you go, like the closer to end users you put the edge, mm-hmm. the more things you're going to have to deploy. One of, the, one of the popular theories about the edge is that we will put lots of edge nodes at the base of all these cellular towers, right? Because 5G needs some element of computing anyway. 5G needs a server to be somewhere, so why not put that on the cell tower? And while you're at it, you can use that computing, and you have now an edge computing network of all these cell towers. It would be many, many more uh, uh, nodes, many more points than, than a CDN represents, or, mm-hmm. the, or 
more than the the telco edge I was talking about before would represent. It wouldn't be in the central offices. It would be at the cell towers. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the questions we're wrestling with on our research is, do, are you really going to need that? Right. Because the actually, to answer your earlier question about what the edge is going to look like, uh, one of the benefits of the edge is lower latency, right, between mm-hmm. you and that first point of the network. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the early use cases have been in IoT and in machine-to-machine or machine-to-computer kinds of right. communication, right, to, to automated entities that, that can speak at that speed right. where, where milliseconds would actually matter. So, and that's fine, but one of the questions about the, the cellular tower edge is how many applications are going to need the edge to be there? Because for a lot of them, I'll bet you, for a lot of them, the existing structures like CDNs or even the cloud itself are going to be good enough. There's latency, but the latency won't kill you. But the applications that really, really need ultra, ultra low latency. That need responses ultra, what right do you think away. ultra low la- latency in your mind? What kind of milliseconds? I'm, going, I'm thinking single digit milliseconds or two. probably even less. Yeah, two or one. So here in Atlanta, my I have a data center... I don't know, five minutes from where I'm sitting, I've got another data center downtown Atlanta and the multiple fiber rings that we're connected to anywhere in the Atlanta metro area, it's probably two and a half at most, maybe three milliseconds anywhere. And so if you're thinking about, hey, I want to, if I'm okay. if I'm a CDN provider, where are 95% of the eyeballs in the state of Georgia, for example, and maybe even some of the metro, you know, Nashville, mm-hmm. Birmingham, Charlotte, um, you know, we've got Savannah and Athens and usually also ne- um, universities need big infrastructure, but I'll bet you 90% of our um, uh, citizens are already in a fiber network and yet they, yeah. s- they still want that edge experience. And so I don't need to put it in a cell tower there, right? No, and one of the conversations and talking to some of the tower people one of the things that they're, so this is a great, this was an idea that they really popularized about five years ago, but I asked them just kind of quietly at PTC or one of these events, how do you accommodate space and power there? Who services it? How often, how do you access it? How does this work differently than like, who are the qualified techs that are going to do it? How do you swap gear out from that? What's the security on a physical place like that? And it's all idea speak. And I also then have so many IOT experts, what they're trying to figure out is how do I make this device instead of the tower? How do I make the, the device? How do I like, what's that look like? Or maybe even a, a node. Most of the time when we say edge node today or a CDN node, we mean it lives in a data center somewhere. It could be a regional data center, could be a big core data center, whatever, but it's, um, it's, you know, could be in their own data center, but it's usually usually in a highly connected data center somewhere that has some level of redundancy. And even if it's not redundant, it's certainly um, conditioned and has some physical hardening. Uh, So as you, as you talk about this with your peers and your customers and your um, you know, you do your research, do any of these kinds of conversations come up or do they still really embrace this idea of a bunch of these little bitty nodes that have these things that we're still trying to figure out around space, power, security, access, et cetera. Or do they think it's, no, man, maybe we're going to skip that. Maybe there'll be some play for that, but we're going to skip that and just go to the devices proper as they become more powerful and more whatever. 
Yeah, that that's where I was going with that. Yeah. Okay. So your your Atlanta example uh, uh, is is exactly what the, the thing we're wrestling with with the cell tower edge. Okay. Right? Right? Like in a place like Atlanta, you wouldn't need it. Further out, you know, in rural areas, you could argue for it, but for a lot of use cases, the edge the edges that already exist, like the CDN might be good enough. Or like I said, connectivity all the way back to the cloud might really be good enough. You don't always need that that low latency. Right. And then for the ultra ultra, so I picked the wrong number or the wrong magnitude for ultra low latency. <laughs> but let's, let's say something the data center can't serve, like ultra, super ultra low latency, the microsecond range. Uh, the biggest use cases we've seen for edge so far have all been in IoT. Mm. But for a lot of those, their definition of edge is a computer that's right there on the factory right. floor or right on the sensing device on a machine. So right. the equivalent of, 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 of the smartphone you were holding up. Uh, to them, that's the edge. They don't need the cell tower either. They've, they've right. got something going already that they don't... Now, if they have to scale that to millions and millions of instances, maybe the cell tower starts something attractive. Right. But if it becomes really cheap to put some piece of software uh, on the computing that already has to be there right. on that factory floor uh, and, and use that as your edge, they're going to keep doing that. So my, my, my difficulty with the cell tower edge is that uh, the, the other structures and other types of edge that already exist might just be good enough. Well, I think it's a great proposal. It was a really interesting idea. And maybe in the, the end, yeah. it still pans out because we, ha- we want to reuse that infrastructure. It's distributed. They, they already have to deal with security and power and whatever. Mm-hmm. I, it, it's just a, um, like all of these things, I don't think it's just a slam dunk and they're still trying to work through that. And I'm really intrigued. We've had VR and AR and IoT people come on and experts that really spend a lot of time. And there's so much uh, on these topics and there's so much interest and energy in how do we figure out how we can economically get it to a handheld user device of some sort. What does that look like? That seems to be more the conversation, at least in my limited experience, than how do I make that happen in a data center? Because it's already sort of happening now. Um, and that will be the near term. Certainly, they're not talking about how do I get it in sort of an, some intermediate um, landing spot, whether that's a tower or whatever. Perhaps they will get there. But really what they're most attracted to is this idea of getting it to somebody's hand, their laptop at most, but their their mm-hmm. tablet or their handheld device or their Oculus thing, especially when they they really start tripping and start talking about the multiverse. I'll wait to see, you know, but I, I reserve the right. I remember 20 years ago when people were talking to me about two things that I did not think were just going to, in my lifetime, be reasonable an electric vehicle that most people would want to drive. I just didn't imagine that that would happen. And then an autonomous driving vehicle. I thought there's, I just don't, I like the Jetsons and, you know, future shows as much as anybody else, but I just don't see that happening. The infrastructure, you know, I sound like an old dude. Now, Greg, if I could go at a reasonable price and get a vehicle that plugged up at my house. I don't have a Tesla yet, but I envy all of my friends that have them or what I really want. I have a, we have a big RV and we have two wheelers and four wheelers. And we do a lot of um, uh, exploring and up in the mountains around here, up in the Smokies and going around and riding and doing stuff like that. 
these new electric trucks that they're coming out that have more torque, plenty of range for what we want to do. And I don't have to go to a gas station. I don't even need ultimately a gas station near my neighborhood and all the economic and environmental impact of that. Um, I, I love the idea. And if I can just tell it, hey, truck, get me to waypoint whatever, and it safely navigates me there. And I'm now able to everything from nap to focus on something else. I love those ideas. So I, I love the future of that. It just seems like when I, when I imagine trying to do, so that's my, that's my disclaimer saying, we'll see if we can get this kind of power to end devices, but doggone it. If we haven't engineered so many miracles, I mean, we, this is godlike power. No, not godlike ethic necessarily, but we have so much power in these things that it's, we should be looking at these in the words of Louis CK every day saying, this is unbelievable. It's a miracle, you know, and we just, uh, my daughter was horrified to know that when I was 19 years old, I drove from Fort Benning, Georgia, back to LA where I'm from. And, uh, she, I had no GPS. I had like a 1985, uh, I'm sorry, 1975 or 78 Chevy Chevette and just kind of limped my way across the U S with a Rand McNally screen, you know, windshield size map. She just couldn't imagine doing something like that. And now uphill in the snow both ways. That's right. <laughs> so anyway, how, how, how do you think without, with all that blowheartedness from me, how okay. soon do you think we're actually going to be moving into an experience where it's, it's more like the handheld or nah, it's really just going to be devices and data center nodes is going to be the future. It could be pretty quick. So it's happening in small ways already. Hmm. Uh, we talked about this concept of CDN, right? right? You can actually, your smartphone actually can be a CDN node. And probably is to certain. It in, is. Yeah. yeah. The, the, there's a peer-to-peer -peer CDN that they, that they can build. And all it takes is a couple lines of JavaScript <clears throat> wow. um, attached to the video. And your phone, if you have opted in, you don't right. want to do this stealth to people. But if you opt right. in, your phone can become a node of the CDN uploading video to other people around you who are watching the same thing. And th this does work. This has worked at scale already. They've used it for things like the World Cup. Mm. Um, mm. The problem is, and this is, you know, this is the argument that I think we're going to run into with anything edge-related for a long time. The problem is the existing CDN has proven to be good enough. So this yeah. idea of the peer-to-peer -peer CDN, it works. It's proven. It's been around well, for a long time, Akamai has made three acquisitions over the course of years that are related to this, but the CDN providers themselves have never needed it on a large scale. What exists already, good enough, is good enough. What, what exists already uh, uh, solves the problem to the extent that the peer-to-peer -peer CDN, it's still used. It's, right. it, it does get used, but it's a rarity. Uh, anyway, that was a digression, but... but yeah. My real point was that your, your phone is already being used as part of the edge. Games do the same thing, right? Niantic mm -hmm. does this apparently with Pokemon Go and their Harry Potter game. And I don't, I don't know anything about right. those, so I won't speak to those. I'll speak to Ingress, which was the predecessor of those two, okay. the superior game. Ingress is an, is an augmented reality game uh -huh. where the real-life landmarks around you, like churches and post offices, are... Uh, they call them portals. They're points of interest. Right. And worldwide, there are two teams. There's a blue team and a green team. Right. So the idea is you take over these real-life landmarks with, for your team. 
Mm-hmm. And then the other team can come and attack you. In fact, it's no fun if they don't. And right. over the course of weeks, these things flip back and forth. Right. But this takes a ton of processing because your exact location matters. You have to be within 40 feet of the, the, the object, of the, the central point of this, this uh, portal mm-hmm. in order to be able to interact with it. And of course, you're going to move around. And in rare cases, you're, someone might be attacking the same location as you. At, right. the, at the same time. So to keep track of all this, I think they have your phone do it. Mm-hmm. And you can feel it because when you're playing this game, your phone heats up massively wow. and the battery just gets chewed down. Right. But what they've done is they've, they took all this complex process. I mean, there's a huge database someplace that keeps right. track of what must be hundreds of thousands of nodes, right. portals all around the world. All of that is being dealt with in the cloud someplace. All the hard work is on your device. Right. I also heard somebody talking about, um, I've become interested in, re-interested in the modern flight simulators. And they said, look, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's this stuff. Uh, and they started talking about two-way. So most of what I think of, if not all that I've thought of, of um, these content delivery networks is I make a request of Disney to give me access to some programming and it streams from somewhere in an experience that I want to have to me. And I, and I like the early days of the internet, I download it or, or I receive it. Now they're talking about two way, um, you know, or, or bilateral where um, as I'm in the movie and experiencing it in this world, I can walk around and see different angles of whatever it is, or I can, I can sort of change the story to some degree as it's um, as it's continuing, uh, you, you know, wherever wherever they're going with this in a number of ways, whether it's corporate training, whether it's entertainment, whether it's gaming or or video or whatever, just all different ways. And I um, I'd never considered that before. Have you heard any conversation around this two way idea instead of just this one way you receive it, but now you can interact with it? Yes, yes, I have. Um, mm. I think that's what they refer to when they talk about volumetric video. I don't I know, but but whether whether what that's the term or not, yeah, I, I have heard right. talk about that. Or on a more basic level, this is not nearly the same thing. But but something they're already doing is with sports. Oh, you yeah. get to pick which camera angles you're using. You get to pick which audio feed you use. If you sure. hate the national broadcasters, uh, right. for example, or if you just want to hear the crowd sounds. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, that that's already starting up. You would think that that would require a more sophisticated network. It does require more bandwidth and more upload bandwidth. But I, I, I keep getting back to this idea that the greatest competitor to any technology is the concept of good enough. Sure. Right? Uh, 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 the I, incumbent. I, part of this comes, well, also technologically too, because part of this comes from the experience I had covering broadband for a little while. Like, mm-hmm. It must be 20 years ago now. But right. uh, back then, everything was going to have to be on fiber optics because DSL, which is uses the copper telephone line to deliver data to your home, was going to run out of steam. Right. There was going to be a ceiling to how fast it could go. And they never hit that ceiling. They, they kept finding ways to, to, to squeeze more bandwidth out of DSL. And as long as there was no reason to dig up the copper, people just, just didn't. Because why would you? Right. Something similar happens with the, the, the gaming example I, ju- I just gave you, right? PC games work in a similar way where 
there, there is all these rich backgrounds and, and artistry that, that comes in a PC game. And the way they can deliver that to you in a streaming way is they just have your computer do all the work. They right. download everything down and you just send your coordinates back and forth right. to, to the game server, basically. I'll bet you there are going to be tricks like that that, that, that can make that, that 3D video kind of experience work without having to rely on some fancy network upgrade or some new edge infrastructure. I mean, that's just a guess, but yeah, I'll, definitely that's something that the game publisher, that the game publisher, the content publishers are going to work on because right. if they can make use of the existing infrastructure, why not? If they can right. find a way to do that, that's, that's, that's the most economical way to go. I, I think it's a, it's a fascinating area to speculate on, which as, as we move sort of towards the end of the conversation, I'm curious what either either we need to elaborate on that we've already talked about or that we haven't talked about in terms of user experience. Where do you think, whether it's corporate or personal, the user experience is, is either going to triple down on something we're already doing or we're really going to... Um, we're really going to expand into areas that we have not used to date anyway, early 2022, the, the CDN infrastructure. And then, then my second question, as you think about it is so much industry is being disrupted by the low barrier or the apparent low barrier of entry to um, competition. Uh, I, I was just watching, I was mentioning Flight Simulator the other day, and I was looking at these organizations that are building these um, ultralight which what, uh, aircraft. And what I thought of ultralight were just, you know, the little, you got the fan on the back and you're out in the Mojave Desert on your little triangle gear. There's so much beautiful, sophisticated, experimental, but really substantial aircraft that are making um, with amazing electronics from Garmin and others in it, that if you have the courage, there's a there's a great ways to learn how to do all this other stuff. And what what's there's a boom then going of inexpensive aircraft that people can manufacture and build, whether it's kits or whatever. And so there's all of these competitors that are coming out um, saying, "Look, I got an idea, and here's how we put it together." We, we see it in other industries, especially in the tech industry. Hmm, how can I help? mitigate against security threats. Well, I'm going to put these things together with this code. And now here, I'm going to do that. Do you think in the CDN world, because we only named less than a dozen providers, either the content creators or people that are express, expressly content enablers um, coming out in, in the next five years? Do you, so those are sort of my two part, the user experience and the competition landscape of people getting into this game. I'm not sure I see other people getting into the CDN game. There are something, if, if you look at all of the CDN providers, there's something yeah. like 100 of them worldwide. And that includes, I mean, some of them are, call them explicitly bargain CDN. They call themselves that, strictly okay. for, for video, video delivery. So I think we have enough of them, quantity-wise. Uh, one thing that's, one wrinkle that started happening late last year that could be interesting is a company called Quilt. QWILT uh, teamed up with Cisco. And for years, Quilt has been working on uh, just CDN caching software mm-hmm. and hardware, like independent. They, they don't run a CDN. Mm-hmm. They would, but if you were AT&T building your own CDN, you could buy stuff from Quilt and use that, assemble that to make okay. a CDN. 
what they're doing now is they are installing CDN nodes inside of uh, telco networks, like deep into the network. So remember how I said CDNs aren't closer, to, aren't that close to the the end user right. to our household. This would be closer to the, the households, closer to us. And uh, the attraction is that the telco doesn't have to pay for it. Hmm. There's a they have a financial partner involved, so they go and install this stuff in many places in the telco network, closer to end users, and they sell this ultra-distributed network to the content provider. So Disney is a customer of mm -hmm. this. So what Disney can do is they can use their normal CDNs, their normal distribution method for the, for the whole world. But in the cases of a quilt partner like BT, British Telecom, which has apparently used this to set up a CDN of its own around all of the UK, in that case, Disney can, can, can go and use the... the TCDN instead. And what they would get out of it is a theoretically a smoother experience for the end user because these nodes are so much closer. Mm. And BT gets a cut of that revenue. And then obviously the financial part of that paid for installing all the stuff gets a cut of that revenue too. Mm. So it's the same concept as a CDN. It essentially looks the same except that it's a, a, a more distributed and, and closer to the end users. That could be a new entrant. It's a one-time thing. Like mm -hmm. I, I can't see somebody else coming in and using this exact model to do right. the same thing. It but you don't see dozens like, of people saying, "Hey, I've got an idea on how to, how to, how, how to, to disrupt the CDNs." Yeah, example. and just hop in. Yeah, and, not. Yeah, I really, I really don't. I, what I see is the opposite. What we were talking about with security. I see the CDNs discovering that there are other ways they could use this infrastructure that they've already built out. Okay. Um, and you see it and. You see it, like I said before, in competitors like Zscaler, mm -hmm. which is shaped exactly like a CDN. They just don't happen to deliver any content. What they deliver is a security service. What about the user experience? How do you think they're going to... What are some of the things they're thinking about to, to um, change the user experience such that people want to continue to engage with their particular platform? That one's tough because, uh, I mean, my mind goes straight to video. Mm. straight to the concept of video first and video is kind of commoditized mm -hmm. it's very hard to do and it's harder to get those for, for live streaming especially it's harder to get those incremental mm -hmm. gains to bring live streaming closer and closer to real time mm -hmm. for an event like the super bowl but in the end there are enough companies that can do it that the content provider can kind of treat it as a commodity actually what what they do now is uh, if you're broadcasting something like the super bowl you, you use multiple cdns mm. And you can hedge them against each other that way. If if one of them isn't working well enough, you can you can just flip to another one. And I don't see any, I don't see any uh, uh, gaping holes in in that that mm. that paradigm. Like like there's no next step that I'm waiting for the right. video world to to take in terms of physical would, delivery. You think it will change first, or or where it will really be? explored is in the gaming experience and i've become fascinated over the last couple of years with the business of esport where you see as mm. many people turning into or tuning into a uh, league of legends or a dota world championship more in fact than watch the super bowl and so yeah. there's an opportunity there for people to you know can i look over not just how it's presented now but can i interact in some way as i if content's being delivered to me 
can I interact in that in some way or the potential, you know, the last six months, we've heard a lot of the quote unquote multiverse, whether it's from Facebook and their big ideas or Microsoft um, in the age of, you know, post pandemic and remote work and these other things, how can we create, how can we take one way delivery of content and make it this more interactive or more engaging or more immersive. And here's how it's, um, here's how it's going to play out. I haven't heard anything specifically. I haven't done a lot of research, but I'm just curious if you've heard much from those, whether it's gaming or the multiverse or anything like that experience as it relates to CDN, or is that they consider that too much fun for you and they don't want to pay you to go research that. Yeah, it, it, it is. <laughs> they, they just assume I'm playing. They won't, right. they won't let me do. No, I mean, that, that kind of happens now, right? Mm. Where we have, I'm thinking of the game Fortnite. Um, sure, yeah. Because you have lots and lots and lots of people in one virtual place and they right. can all interact with each other. And it, it does affect CDNs because the, the, the uh, Akamai uh, keeps reporting on what the largest event they've ever hosted or ever supported is. Right. And for the longest time, it's been, it actually wasn't the Super Bowl. It's been um, cricket World Cups or cricket I championships. It. Sure. Yeah, because you've, especially since so India, often, Pakistan, one of the teams is in India or England, Pakistan, yeah. yeah, where they need the network support. Mm. Uh, the latest one I remember hearing about was not cricket or sports. It was Fortnite. It was one of these, these uh, one-time events yeah. where they got millions and millions of people in there. So I, I I do hear about things like that. I get the feeling that they, so far they have been supportable with, with, with the existing infrastructure. Um, I'll tell you what, what interests me or what I think is coming, what I hope is coming next, although it could get, it, it, there's no guarantee. Right. It, it, this might not help the user experience, but it could help things like global interactive games, like, like mm. the, the Pokemon Go thing. Right. Is the idea of, of a federated edge. So we could take, uh, we've talked about different edges, right? We have mm -hmm. CDNs that could be, could host edge computing. We have the telecom internet work, call it, that could host mm -hmm. that. We have the cell towers. There are companies, startups that are taking pools of edge from multiple of these parties and presenting them as a single global edge. Mm. Uh, so it, it, it's, when I talked about, well, when I talked about BT and that, that, uh, Nationwide CDM, for example, you could have, they could go to BT for, for parts of an England footprint. They could go to uh, uh, SK for parts of the South Korea footprint. And, and, and the, the vision is that the applications running on this federated edge would be in fully containerized uh, microservices form with mm -hmm. Kubernetes magic happening. And what, what that gets you is that an application can be fragmented. It, it can, it can, Pieces of it can run in different places. More importantly, the application can be spun up and down um, automatically based on need. And mm -hmm. it can, uh, if it had to, although I have trouble imagining why it would have to, it, it could migrate from one node of the network to another. What you get out of all this is, is an edge that is global and but yet centrally controlled and runs on multiple networks so you don't have to rely on one network provider. So the, the analogous, the, the thing that, the application that only runs on a system like that uh, is Uber, mm. apparently. This is how they, what they do is they'll spin up more instances of their application on the server side uh, as, to follow the sun. So as rush hour or whatever peak time comes up in different time zones around the world, they'll have 
more compute available to themselves, and then they'll they'll uh, spin those applications down as you get to the the, the dead hours of the night. Right? They do that internally. It, it is my understanding. But the idea of this global federated edge is to enable more applications to do that kind of magic. It, the it barriers like, that you got to think of an application that does that now. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. I'm trusting that we're going to figure something like that out. You know, we were. Um, back to kind of the flight thing, I was watching this guy and one of his, part of his requirement to get his pilot's license, he's in Eastern Europe, was English proficiency. And I thought for a second, why did you have to take all this lessons and pass an English proficiency test? Well, because the global standard for flight control into controlled airports pretty much around the world, certainly all the major internet, you know, Frankfurt or Amsterdam or London or wherever outside of the US is English. And planes are able to fly internationally around the world and have handoffs from, this isn't a perfect example, but handoff from flight control to flight control to flight control, manage control mechanisms, report there. You know, they've standardized on how aircraft report into the various systems globally. Um, so at some point, I think that in a lot of the things that we're talking about, I'd be curious how that plays out from a nationalism and other way, but from a technology perspective, we will have hopefully the, not with the, without the negative connotations, the matrix or the, the net or the, whatever it is that you want to describe where, um, you have this experience wherever it makes the most sense for the latency, the economics and the other constraints the, the work is being done, whether it's on my, ed, my end device or in my car or in a node near me, and it's seamlessly handed off as, as the work moves, as I move or interact. We'll, yeah. We have some small examples of that, but uh, we'll see. We do. Yeah. Well, I mean, your phone itself is an my example, phone. right? That's because exactly because right. that's what the cell, cell phone does <clears throat> inherently. Yeah. But you're right. Uh, more and more workloads or more and more endpoints are probably going to become more mobile. Right. And then that's something that that something we'll have to find ways to support it. And I, I keep coming back to this again. It might be that what we have already in networks is good enough. Yeah, but, I think it, maybe not. That is more of the work is done by machines that work at machine time with machine reflexes. Uh, maybe not. Maybe we need something more. Well, what haven't we talked about that we should have talked about here in this last hour? What have we missed? Right, Anything? Briefly, we, I'll yeah. mention the the idea of global availability of data or a global database hmm. where if you got, um, just say IoT, you have IoT sensors, things right. all over the world. Right. They, all record, they all record information right. and they pump it into a database. And the way we would do that, the way you would do that normally is the database sits somewhere like the cloud and they, mm -hmm. they pump the data into the cloud. What if... What if we go kind of blockchain on that and have the database exist in all of these nodes and it's always updating itself everywhere so that you can always get the right answer really quickly? This is actually a problem they've worked on in databases for a long time. Right. And and there, there are different there's an obvious trade-off you can make between speed and absolute accuracy. Mm -hmm. Do you want the answer really, really quick or do you want to make sure you get the right answer? And there's um, always a third leg, which is the economics, right? You want it cheap. Yeah. Or do you want it accurate or do you want it fast? Where's yeah. the emphasis? I can usually give you one and a half or two of those. Exactly. I can never yeah. give you three, but you know absolutely how we could um, get the, in, 
most of the world, certainly people in my tribe to get behind that and really invest in it is make it about perfecting bacon. If we can make it about um, how can I get bacon cheaper, easier, and more part of my life? I think part of that global database could change the world. Maybe not. I think we found the killer app. I think that, <laughs> I think. <laughs> or if uh, the network could make my coffee. Yes. Like physically make it for me. Uh, when I think about it, you know, right? when I wake up, I just like they see it in the movies, you know, when I wake up and it's time to go this morning, I had to be out of bed at 630 to... Um, to go, but I was up late, so I had to go pick up a daughter this morning, and I had things late last night, and so my yeah. my schedule will change a little bit. And if I just have the ability, without that, I felt like I could do it in a secure, private way that it sees me just like my watch does. My watch sees me moving. It says, "Oh, I see you're wrestling. You must be uh, no longer sleeping. It's time to wake up. It's time to do these things." It it has this. Uh, um, intuitiveness about it. And so if my room with my infrared cameras saw that I was up and moving, Oh, turn on the, you want the coffee pot on or, or I've just told it, turn on the coffee pot, get the hot water going. That would be fantastic. Change the world. That sounds useful. But if the watch has a shut up button, I would probably end up hitting that and then just throwing it in a corner somewhere <laughs> because that waking you up part doesn't, I, I don't think I could be down with that. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's well, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to get myself in trouble. So far we're, we're batting a thousand. So, well, Craig, <laughs> thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. I think it's great content. If people want to fi- find out more about what your research you're conducting or more about you or your organization, where can they do that? We are at 451research.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, I exist on Twitter. It's just at Craig Matsumoto. I don't really post much okay. uh, these days anymore. It's, 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 I joined 10 years ago when right. you could actually be heard and that's a lot harder now yeah and i i on linkedin i don't understand how those urls work and linkedin is kind of a like somebody's messy attic to me anyway right. but if you want to track me, track me down there um i'm there and I, I i don't post what i've been researching but i really that's my new year's resolution i really ought to do that Absolutely. Well, look, we'll we'll uh, put those links in the comments below so people can find you easily. And I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And I look forward to catching up with you later in the year to see uh, what else is on your mind. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks, Dave. It's been My fun. great pleasure. Hey, and if you've enjoyed the show today, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. And we'll see you next time on the Keep Experience. Thank you, everybody. Bye.